0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado.
1: Coming up on today's future award-winning Analytics podcast, very first episode of 2020. I'll be joined by recurring guest Bruce Nolan from the Nick and Nolan Show. And I mean, look, no big surprise here, folks. We're going to talk Buffalo Bills. Heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, soul-crushing, whatever fancy adjective that you want to describe. Tough loss, man. Saturday, overtime at Houston. The Bills were up 16 late in the third. Could not close a deal. Bruce and I are going to deep dive into the game. We're going to give the best non-emotional, non-knee-jerk objective. Unbiased reaction is humanly possible. And that's not easy, of course. We are Buffalo Bills, guys. This is a Bills podcast. Okay. I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm pro football talk, like I'm ESPN or something like that. Like I don't have any emotional attachment in the Buffalo Bills. I do. And I don't try to hide that either. And neither does Bruce. But anyway, we're going to talk about the game, why we think they lost, what they should have done differently. And then we're going to at least scratch the surface of something that frankly, I don't think either of us were quite ready to do yet. And that is start to talk about the future of the Buffalo Bills, the 2020 Buffalo Bills and what they might start to do during the off season. So I'll have that for you with Bruce, who by the way, one of the very best Buffalo Bills podcasters out there. And if you're living under a rock and you're not on social media, don't know about Bruce Nolan. I'm gonna tell you this right now. He's been on the podcast before, so you probably have heard him, but if you haven't, you're going to be in for a treat. This dude is insanely knowledgeable, insightful, and talented. So Bruce Nolan coming up. Also on a much happier note, I was afforded the opportunity to go back to my hometown, Buffalo, New York, for the holidays. That was a lot of fun. Did a couple shows there, family, friends, wings, all the fun stuff. And then I went directly to Miami for three and a half days. I'll tell you what that was all about. Plenty of stuff coming up in just a few minutes. Before that, though, I want to let you know today's show is being supported by Sounds Assured. So listen, it seems everyone has a podcast out there. I listen to a ton of them myself. I'm sure you do as well. The biggest mistake I hear, and I could almost tell instantly, it's pretty obvious. Many make this. People go out, they spend their money on fancy microphones and boom arms and interfaces, headphones, recording devices, all the bells and whistles. But here's the problem. You go out, you get all this stuff, and you don't treat your recording environment at all. I'm talking, obviously, mainly walls, the ceiling around where you're recording, and the result, audio sounds like crap. Sorry, but it does. Listen, you need to invest in acoustic treatments that make the gear that you spend your hard-earned money on thrive. Sounds Assured as top-notch acoustic foam. I know this personally because some of my own home studio has wedges that are outfitted from Sounds Assured. Very reasonably priced and most importantly, excellent quality. Look, you can go on Amazon, find the cheapest acoustic foam and it might look good when you put it on your wall, but I promise you, and again, I know this from experience, it's not going to help. Invest in your audio the right way. Visit soundsassured.com. Give them a call. Someone will very happily discuss your needs with you. As a bonus, use promo code Moran10. You're going to get 10% off any order. Do yourself, do your podcast, do your audio production a very big favor. Go check out soundsassured.com. And on that note, let's do it. Let's do it.
0: If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moran Analytics Podcast, talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. Let's
1: go! All right, podcast fans, what's going on? How you doing? What's up? Episode 184. More analytics podcast, very first episode of 2020. Thank you as always for continuing to listen and to download the show. Like I said at the top, Bruce Nolan from the Nick and Nolan show is going to be my guest. I'll have him on in just a minute. Back here now in Florida in my home studio, just back from a trip to both Buffalo and then Miami. Lots of fun. Of course, it's always fun to get back to my hometown, Buffalo, New York got up there for the holidays. Actually, I was up there for like 11 days and man, it's it's great. I love Buffalo. It's always going to be my home someday. It literally will be my home again. I'm very much looking forward to that day. But for now, I just get back up and visit whenever I can. Family, friends, lots of fun, man. Great chicken wings. Of course, I went to seven new spots and now I'm up to 67. I'm not going to talk about those places on today's show. Maybe I'll do that on Fridays. Also, the weather, by the way, man, you know, it's no secret. I'm soft. I don't like to be cold. As much as I love Buffalo, as much as I miss Buffalo, I don't miss the winter and I don't miss being cold. That wasn't an issue with all this trip. It was unseasonably warm, above average temperatures almost every day. I think maybe the very last day I was up there. It started to get cold, but all in all, the weather was really good. And then I got to do three episodes of this podcast. I tape it in Buffalo. I call it Wings With. I hook up with somebody at a wing spot. We eat wings, shoot the shit, tape a conversation. Those are always fun. I got to do three of them this time around. I hooked up with Marcel Louis Jacques from ESPN. We did a show from Macy's Place Pizzeria, which, oh my God, those wings are so amazing. I already knew they were. In fact, I reviewed them last summer, I was at least one of the people that kind of got the ball rolling the buzz with that place. And this just confirmed how good they were. I picked out Cajun medium, which I had had before. Marcel hooked us up with hot honey mustard and hot lemon pepper. And I'm telling you, man, those wings were unbelievable. So that was a lot of fun. Then I hooked up with Reed Ferguson from the Bills, the long snapper. Of course, we did a show at Sunny Reds in Lackawanna. That's one of my go-to spots. Some of the best traditional medium wings you'll get anywhere in Western New York. That was a lot of fun. And then I hooked up, my last show was with Matt Perino and we did it at Casey's Tavern. Now I grew up in the West Side Black Rock area. So I'm very familiar with Casey's Tavern. But what I remember it as is an old man, gin, rundown type of place. certainly not the case anymore. A guy bought the bar about a year and a half ago and it was actually closed and I didn't know this. It was closed for like a year and a half for renovations. And I mean, God, it, it's a total... Literally, it's a total different place now. The result, it's a sports bar. It looks fantastic. There's an arcade in the back. Anyway, really good wings. Me and Matt Perino hooked up there, did a show. A lot of fun. So thank you for Matt, Reed, Marcel, and of course, Macy's Place Pizzeria, Sunny Reds, and Casey's Tavern, all great spots. So I was in Buffalo to New Year's Day, and then I actually flew to Miami. And the reason why I was in Miami is because my son, who's, a high school football player here down in Florida. In fact, that's pretty much at this point the lone reason why we're not back up in Buffalo yet. But anyway, my kid, high school football junior, got him ready to play in a showcase game in Miami. In fact, not only did he get to play uh, in Miami, but we played, the game was at the Hard Rock Stadium, which was an unbelievable experience. He got to play with and against some of the better high school juniors around the country. And man, it was just a an experience I'll never forget seeing your son on the field, an NFL field, not just any NFL field either. I mean, literally the Super Bowl is going to be there in I think less than four weeks now. So what a great thrill. The Titan Tron was going, the stadium announcer, hearing his name, watching him make a couple plays. They won 36 to six. He had a good game. I'm not going to go through his stats. I'm not going to be that guy, but i am he played well. I'm just going to leave it at that. Great experience there. Miami's pretty cool. I live on the other side. I live on the The Gulf Coast side, like kind of near Tampa. So I had been to Miami previously, but it was only to go to a Bills game, and I just went to the stadium and right back. I never got to see any Miami. I did this time around. It's a cool city, man. I don't know if it's for me. Like I don't think I could actually live there, but there are a lot of cool sites. Of course, South Beach. We we spent an afternoon there. That was really that was something else. That's a trendy place. And then Saturday night we went to the Hard Rock Cafe Casino, and that's like a spectacle. I mean. God, I guess you got to be there to really know lavish, almost too lavish. But anyway, Buffalo was great. Miami was a lot of fun. But now I'm settled back in here in Florida. Of course, the big news, the Buffalo Bills lost in overtime. I'm going to save my thoughts for that with my conversation with Bruce Nolan. In fact, you know what? not going to waste any more time here. Let's just get right into it. Here it is, my conversation with Bruce Nolan from the Nick and Nolan Show. All right, I'm joined by recurring guests now, Bruce Nolan, co-host of the Nick and Nolan Show. My oh, man, a sad day, sad week, whatever you want to call it for you, for Bill's Mafia, for me, for everybody. How you doing? How you doing emotionally, and how you doing physically? I know you're kind of powering through right now. You're definitely under the weather. We talked a little bit before we started taping this. What's
0: up, buddy? How you doing? I'm doing much better emotionally now than I am physically. I, during the game, I allow myself to just kind of let the emotions sort of flow out of me. And then about five to 10 minutes after the game is over, I'm pretty much back to zero. So I'm, I'm okay. Emotionally speaking, I allow myself to experience the adrenal dump that comes along with watching a professional sports game that you have a rooting interest in and that you are emotionally invested in. But after that goes over, the rest of my life just kind of takes over perspective and the fact that it's just a game with people wearing uniforms and carrying a ball starts to kind of seep in a little bit on me. It kind of seeps back into perspective and then I'm back to, okay, physically not quite as great, but I'll power through because, you know, I mean, it's, it's Pat Moran. I mean, it's a future award-winning podcast. I got to be, make sure I'm ready.
1: All right. Well, you're not just powering through for me, man. You're powering through period this week because On Tuesday morning, hopefully people are hearing this Tuesday morning, you're doing this show with me. On Wednesday, of course, you got the Nick and Nolan show, which you do on every Wednesday. However, this week, you're actually going solo. Nick can't do the show this week, so you're by yourself. And then on Thursday, you're going to be on Locked on Bills with our buddy Joe Marino. So a pretty busy uh, week for Bruce Nolan there on the podcasting airwaves.
0: This is not a good week for you if you're a podcast fan, a member of Bills Mafia, and don't like Bruce Nolan. This is just a bad week for you in general. Might just want to sit this one out because I'm going to be hard to get away from this week. And <laughs> I, I'm kind of insufferable as it is, but now I have to be insufferable and omniscient. And so that's going to be an issue. I got to make sure I know everything. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying the same thing on all three podcasts, but also I'm omnipresent. I'm right there. So much like Bruce almighty said, I am God, it's very similar to the scenario I got. I'm kind of I'm everywhere right now. It's it's uh, it's hard to get away from me right now. <laughs>
1: All right. So we're obviously going to dip right into some uh, Buffalo Bills talk here. Let me ask you this before we actually talk about the game. What was your mood leading up to the game? Like, let's say starting from 48 hours or so before the game, because for me, it was very different than normal. I've been really busy traveling. I was in Buffalo for the holidays, and then I went to Miami. In fact, I was in Miami when the Bills were playing on Saturday. My son was playing high school football at a showcase game, so I had a lot of stuff to really distract me. So I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking and dwelling and stressing over the game like I'm sure I normally would have on a normal week, especially a playoff week. What was this like? What was this week like for you leading up to the game? How? What kind of a zone were you in? What kind of mood were you in?
0: I would define myself as two things in the lead up to the game. The first was calm. And I was calm because I projected the bills to go eight and eight this year and miss the playoffs. As far as I'm concerned, we were playing with house money. This was year two of a rebuild. I didn't think we were quite there yet. We went six and 10 last year. I think we would go eight and eight. I was absolutely committed to the over six and a half Vegas wins that the line of that with, they were putting out there. But I was very calm because as far as I was concerned, they had already exceeded expectations. The second thing was I was confident. I didn't think the Houston Texans were an unbeatable team. I picked the bills to win that game. I still think the bills are a better team than the Houston Texans who happened to lose that particular game. I think we're better coached. I think we're better in a lot of areas. Our defense is better. I think we had some things that happened and there's so many of them. We're probably going to get into, but I was calm and I was confident. That's how I felt. Okay.
1: That makes sense. Now, I'll tell you for me now. That's you before the game. What was your emotions and your feeling like immediately after the game? Because for me, and you kind of hit on this a little bit in August. Had you told me that the Bills would make the playoffs and lose in overtime in the wild card round, I would have jumped for joy at that point. I would have been thrilled to have that ride for this season, and I gladly would have taken it. Even last, say last Friday, just twenty four hours or so before the game, tough overtime loss in Houston. I would have been okay with it I wouldn't have been happy but I would have been all right with it but today as we're taping this and we're taping this late Monday night for a Tuesday morning release what is it 48 hours a little more than 48 hours now I'm still really bothered because you said it I think the Buffalo Bills are the better team too and I just I can't get over the fact and yes you said they would be eight and eight I can't remember what I said to be honest with you but I know that I didn't pick them to to make the playoffs I know that for sure so again That's my expectations at that time, but I'm still bothered right now because I also feel like Buffalo was a better team, and I feel like there's no way they should have lost that game. They should be playing this week, and I'm trying to get over. In fact, you know what? On Twitter, I intentionally, for 24 hours, dude, I didn't tweet anything about the game because I didn't want to have any knee-jerk, overly emotional reaction, you know, like I tend to do. I'm a knee-jerk reactor. I didn't want to have that, but now it's been, again, 48 hours, 52 hours, whatever it's been. I'm still very much bothered by this game. What about you?
0: I think for the five to 10 minutes immediately post game where I allow myself to feel human emotions, I think that frustrated was probably the right word. Frustrated was the right word because it's it's a frustrating game to talk about. And because it's a frustrating game to talk about, it's a frustrating game to think about. Sure. Because it's not one thing. I don't even have a place, a singular point for which to focus my frustrations as a fan. There are so many things that have to go wrong for you to lose a 16 point lead. There's right. so many things that have to happen, and all of them happened. So if you want to be mad about Josh Allen's performance, you can do that. If you want to be mad about Sean McDermott's head coaching performance, you can do that. If you want to be mad at Brian Dable, you can do that. If you want to be mad about tackling, you can do that. If you want to be mad about defensive scheming, you can do that. If you want to be mad about Devin Singletary usage, you can do that. There's too many things to be angry about that for those brief moments before I come back and center myself a little bit. I felt frustrated because I don't even know how to be angry. I'm frustrated that I can't be even angry the way I want to be because there's too many places to go and your brain is bouncing back and forth and you're dealing with the Bill's mafia, burning Twitter down and people losing their marbles. And you're thinking to myself, I don't even know where to start with this right now. Where do I even start? And if you start at a different narrative, then perhaps the listener or the reader or the Twitterer really wanted you to start at. Then not only do you have to defend that that flagpole that you just planted, right? You also have to defend it against people who thought you should have planted a different flag. So you say, a oh, man, you know, I really didn't like the way that the defense defended that third and 18. And because there's so many things, you could get six other people in your mentions going, yeah, but what about Dable? Yeah, but what about Josh Allen? Yeah, but what about not using Devin Singletary enough? What about Sean McDermott not playing aggressively? You know, so because there's so many things, I think the overwhelming feeling is frustration. That's fair. What singular play, because you just
1: ran down a lot of things that had to go wrong, which of course, and did go wrong for the Bills to lose. And there's many plays, but is there one singular play that you just, you can't get it out of your head? It just seems to frustrate you more than any other one. I got one, but first I want to hear if you have one singular player if it's just a combination of a few things that really kind of get under your skin the most.
0: I think they all get under my skin equally, but if I had to pick one play that I would have chosen to go differently, Duke Williams catches that touchdown pass from Josh Allen. That, I feel, is different because I feel like it changes the dynamics of the game for Houston One of the things that allowed Houston to kind of get back in the game is they caught the Bills in a really bad defensive front from a a run defense standpoint, Mm -hmm. and they ran it down their throats to get this first score of the game. If the Bills score a touchdown there instead of a field goal, that changes the dynamics of the game. Maybe Houston comes out a little pass happy and they don't ever unlock that opportunity to run the game. The Bills continue to get sacks and negative plays on Deshaun Watson, and maybe the Texans never really get rolling. At that point, in addition, the point spread by itself is enough that we would have won the game because they wouldn't have had the opportunity to get enough possessions to score. But there's so many different plays. But if I could pick one to go another direction, it would be that one.
1: Yeah, that makes it 17 nothing instead of 13 nothing at the half. I'll tell you for me. And again, there's a lot of obvious candidates. The 3rd and 18 play the sack that didn't happen The one thing I can't get out of my mind is that overtime design run by Josh Allen. It just, it's Mm. eating away at me. Not a box score thing. In fact, I put this on Facebook, something about, you know, box score scouts, you look at stats and that's how you determine if guys played well. That bothers me so much. That play for all the talk about Brian Dable, and I'm sure you probably have a mixed bag on how you feel about the job that he did on Saturday, but that was a well designed play. Okay. Dawson Knox has Cunningham in front of him. If he picks up that block, or if Mitch Morris gets a piece of him, that right sideline was there. It was first and 10 from the Houston 41. It's overtime, by the way, mind you, okay? Worst case, and I mean worst case scenario, if Cunningham gets blocked by Dawson Knox, if he does his job on that play, Josh Allen's down at maybe the 25 yard line. They're already in relatively easy field goal range, and then they have a first down. Who knows? Maybe they pick up another first down and It's a chip shot at that point. I just, I can't get over that because all the slamming about Brian Dable, and I'm not the biggest fan of his all the time, but, you know, I have a big problem and maybe we'll talk about this in a few minutes with Devin Singletary. I feel like he should have gotten the ball more than he did. But at the end of the day, he called, it was a good play call, man. It was there. If Dawson Knox picks up that block, that's a first down. They're deep in the Houston territory. They're in field goal range. Who knows, man? Maybe he even scores a touchdown on the play and the game could have been over. No, there's a lot of green on that right sideline. And just, God, you just, you got to make that block, man. And it's kind of the epitome of a guy like Dawson Knox. I like him. So I'm not sitting here. This is an anti Dawson Knox talk. He's made some great plays this season, but he just shows he's just like, you know, a lot of people think Josh Allen's still raw. So's Dawson Knox. And that just really sucks that he couldn't make that block or that Morris couldn't get a piece of him. Because literally, Cunningham hit him for a one yard gain and that was it. If they blocked that guy, he's in field goal range. They, that the, uh, the third 18, or I'm sorry, the sack that doesn't happen because Houston doesn't see the ball. The game's over that. So that really is the, probably the one play more than any other that I just, I can't get past it. Even days
0: later, I agree with you. And I don't, I didn't remember people complaining about the quarterback power run when Josh Allen broke it for 40 plus yards in the first quarter. Right. I yeah. don't remember. I don't remember a lot of whining about how that was go- done at that point. And if. If Dawson Knox makes that block, then that means we have two game-changing plays on a quarterback power run to the right. And I just, it's one of those things where people still have to execute. And one of the hallmarks of how well a play was called is was the right play there to be made by the right person at the right time? And in this case, Josh Allen had the ball. in his dominant hand going down the right sideline, which we've established Josh Allen is infinitely better running to his right than running to his left because he doesn't have a tendency to shift the ball. I actually made a note that he actually shifted the ball from his right hand to his left hand one time earlier in the game. And I thought the crowd was going to go crazy. I was like, Oh my gosh, he did the thing where he changed the ball. Like every, you know, runner learns in seventh grade how to carry a football, but he was running to the right with blockers out in space, meeting the appropriate amount of yardage to get into field goal range. He was close to the sideline to be able to mitigate any potential damage. Everything was lined up perfectly, but somebody didn't execute. And that's what happens. And there's so many, not just coaching, but execution problems in this game that you can point to and go, man, if that goes the other way, this doesn't happen. But that's what I opened with. What I opened with was a lot of things have to go wrong for you to blow 16 points in the playoffs to Houston at halftime. Unfortunately, a lot of things did.
1: And one of them is the defense, and we're definitely going to talk about them in a minute, but let's kind of circle back here to Brian Dable because from my eyes on Facebook and Twitter and all social media for that matter, he's the biggest hot-button topic there is out there right now when it comes to the Bills. What's your assessment on the job he's done? It's just, it's such a tough topic, man. Nearly five quarters against a defense that, frankly, isn't very good. They only scored one touchdown and that was on a trick play on the very first drive of the game. So if you want to slam Brian Dable, it's easy to do that. But I'm in the mindset, I'm pretty sure you are too, that for the most part, listen, players got to execute. You talked about Duke Williams dropping a touchdown pass right before the half. That's four points right there. John Brown is great as he's been this year. And man, I am such a big John Brown guy. But on that one drive, he didn't drag his toes. That was a perfect pass from Josh Allen. He drags his toes, that's first and goal right there. Maybe they score a touchdown. That could be eight points right there. We just talked about Dawson Knox missing a block. That was more points. That's on the players as far as I'm concerned. I mean, even the other side of the ball too. Is it Leslie Frazier or Sean McDermott's fault that Saran Neal and Matt Milano couldn't bring down to Sean Watson or that they didn't tackle on the third and 18, you know, or that Saran Neal dropped an interception? I feel like too much blame and also too much credit sometimes gets put on coordinators where for the most part, the players need to execute what the calls are. But what's your assessment right now of Brian Dable? How did he do on Saturday and going forward? Because at least some of this conversation is going to be about the future too. Are you one of those guys? Do you definitely want him back next year for Josh Allen's year three? Or are you good if he happens to land a head coaching job somewhere else? I don't think he's going to, but it's certainly a possibility. He interviewed in Cleveland on Monday. What's your assessment of Brian Dable?
0: I definitely want Brian Dable back next year. I don't think Brian Dable is an elite offensive coordinator. That's I think under no pretenses should that be assumed. However, Brian Dable has taken basically none of the credit for Josh Allen's development, but yet gets all of the blame for anything that goes wrong, which I think is very interesting. Right. In addition, I think that people forget what the offensive talent was like on this team last year. And, During the 2018 Buffalo Bills season, there was a a brief moment before Josh Allen came back from injury and decided to go YOLO Josh on us and just throw the ball down the field to Robert Foster and run for 100 yards a game. There was a time when the Bills were on track to be the worst offensive unit in the history of football. That was a legitimate chance. And when you look at the, the names that were on that depth chart in 2018, it's pretty clear to see why. Those receivers aren't on a roster anymore in the NFL. Jeremy Curley is not employed. Kelvin Benjamin is not employed. Andre Holmes is not employed. Yes. Our starting three receivers, absent Zay Jones, who is not is still employed by the Raiders, but really not that much employed. So aside from those things and Zay Jones, no one else is even on a roster. So what you're saying is your starting players that you equipped around an NFL rookie quarterback were not good enough to have a job on 31 other franchises. In addition, his offensive line was one of the worst in football. It was talent wise. One of the worst offenses I've ever seen in my entire life. Me too. And statistically at the end of the year, it was, eh, it wasn't the worst in the world. It was, below average fairly bad i'd say this year we put a ton of effort into our offense and that's great but people are underestimating how bad we were to start with and because of that they're overestimating where we are now you cannot say simultaneously man you know this offense we need a true number one receiver we need additional running back we need some help on the offensive line man if we got another tight end that would be really great You cannot say that and then simultaneously in the same breath think that Brian Dable is the problem on the offense. Because if Brian Dable is the problem on the offense, that means he's got the tools he needs and he's the one holding them back. You can't have it both ways. And so Brian Dable has more to work with this year than he did last year. And the offense is better than it was last year. But we went from terrible to, okay, we, we have actual tools to work with. We didn't go from terrible to amazing. That's not what happened. The fact that we had to put so much effort in free agency just to get our offense off the mat indicates how bad we were last year. We put a ton of effort into it, but that effort wasn't there to get us from good to great. It wasn't there to get us from great to stellar. It was there to get us from abhorrent to passable. And that's what we got. We got from abhorrent to passable. And I anticipate if we put another investment in the offense through the draft and through free agency and maybe through a trade if available and things like that, that we have the opportunity with another year of growth from Josh Allen to go from passable to solid next year. And I think a lot of offensive coordinator critiques are really results based. It's based on if the offense did well, that drive, then we're okay. And if the offense didn't do well, that drive, well, it's got to be the coordinator. And some of that is something you and I have talked about before, and that's we don't really want to blame Josh Allen. When Josh Allen does something bad, we want to blame somebody else, and the easiest person to blame, and someone that, because Buffalo offensive has been so bad over the last 20 years, the easiest person to blame, the easiest scapegoat, is the offense coordinator. Now, to the question about Houston, there's legitimate criticism for Brian Dable against for the Houston game, Devin Singletary getting 13 carries in that game. I know he got 19 touches, seven targets is great, but he should be getting a lot more than 13 carries against a really bad rush defense. None in overtime, none in overtime. Brian Dable called the overtime period. Like he was running a two minute drill. It's like he panicked and thought we got to get this quick. And when you go to overtime, That's not the case, especially when you've got the ball and next score wins. You don't, that's not when you panic. The clock doesn't matter. It's overtime. There's no chance of you tying. So at that point, you need to do whatever's effective, not whatever's fastest. And I think that there is legitimate criticism for Brian Dale for doing that. And I think he should take the criticism for it. But just because you have something to criticize him for doesn't mean you should fire him. We got things to criticize Josh Allen for. Should we cut him? We got things to criticize Deion Dawkins for. for should we cut him? There's things to, to criticize Sean McDermott for. Should we fire him? Hey, you know what? Brandon Bean swung and missed on Kelvin Benjamin. Should we fire him? I'm not saying that he's without fault he absolutely is there's mistakes he's made we just went out on him and i think that's fairly notable a mistake but we're we're focusing in on things like that and then when someone says okay what else we're saying global general terms like his offense lacks creativity oh did we have a wide receiver throw two touchdown passes this year both in big games is that is that what you mean by lacking creativity oh um well he's Predictable. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't know. The criticisms are weird and vague because we have specific criticisms, but when we accept those and go, okay, I accept those, he's not perfect, he has flaws and he showed them, but I need you to show me more than that in order to fire him. Then all of a sudden people get a little bit weird with their responses and just want to use things like, well, you know, results, and then you point out the talent. And the digger you deep into Fire table. The, the messier and more vague it gets, and I'm just not willing to accept that messiness and that vague, vagueness on one side of the equation, while the other side of the equation contains things like continuity for your rookie quarterback and continuity for your second-year quarterback and now continuity for your third-year quarterback. Big year for Josh Allen coming up. He's got to take the next step so he can show people he's the guy. You really think that continuity isn't gonna help Josh Allen with the things that Josh Allen's bad at, but a new coordinator will. Will a new coordinator fix Josh Allen's ills? That just makes me wonder how well you're evaluating Josh Allen. And so, Brian Dable has his flaws. He, he shouldn't be criticized for those things, just like any player should be criticized for the mistakes that they make. That doesn't mean I wanna fire the guy.
1: Do you think that, whether it's Brian Dable or Sean McDermott and maybe a little bit of combination of both, that they might have some trust issues with Devin Singletary as good as he is right now, because I can't remember off the top of my head what game it was, but he fumbled twice in one game. I'm sure you remember that. And I, maybe that's in the back of their mind in key spots because I can't for the life of me. Again, I'm not trying to, I'm, listen, Brian Dable is a smart football guy. He's a hell of a lot smarter than you and I when it comes to football, for sure. But I can't for the life of me understand how Frank Gore's out there in critical points of the game getting carries, and Devin Singletary's not. Singletary, like I said, he didn't even get one carry in that overtime drive. And it's not like the Bills were pinned back deep either. I mean, they were moving the ball. I just don't understand it because it's not like Devin Singletary is this home run hitter, an all or nothing type of guy where if he doesn't have a big play, he's losing seven, eight yards. I mean, he's very underrated in between the tackles. Beckett guys miss running through tackles. I just, I, the only thing I can possibly think of, again, with these five wide receiver sets in overtime, not even the threat of running Devin Singletary, I just don't understand why, unless there's might've been at this point because he was a rookie. And he, again, he fumbled twice in that one game. It's the only thing I could think of. Do You think there might've been some kind of trust issues? Now, before you answer that too, again, we just talked about this a few minutes ago, before we go destroying Brian Dable, at the end of the day, Again, Dawson Knox makes that block, or Mitch Morse makes that block. Josh Allen rumbles down that right sideline on that drive. In worst case, they're in relatively easy field goal range. So again, not blasting Brian Gable, but do you think maybe there's some kind of trust issue that he didn't get to see the ball in his hands late in the game? Although he did make a catch, but he didn't carry the ball. I
0: absolutely think there's a trust issue, and I'll tell you why. Every time the point of a play is to gain as many yards as possible, Devin Singletary takes it. Anytime the point of the play is to not fumble or bleed clock, Frank Gore takes it. They trust Frank Gore in big positions or in positions where they view the lows to be catastrophic. For example, if they are backed up against their own end zone, the the other team got a great punt off and it landed and got down at the, the Buffalo bills, three yard line. The next person to take a carry is going to be Frank Gore. Yeah. That's just the way it is, because they trust him. Now, I don't necessarily know if that means they distrusted Singletary. That just means they have such a respect for Frank Gore's professionalism that they go, listen, if there's one person I want in this situation here, it's Frank Gore. So I don't know if it necessarily means they distrust Singletary. It just means that they clearly trusted Frank Gore more in big situations. Now, we can make a separate argument as to whether or not they should, but... I would make an argument that Devin Singletary's probability of breaking a big run in overtime and changing your game for the positive method is much higher than his probability of fumbling in overtime and killing the game for you. So that's my personal preference. One of the problems I have with that, but this also wouldn't be such a big issue if there wasn't such a very, very obvious production gap. Between Devin Singletary and Frank Gore. If this was Devin Singletary as a 1A and play another player as a 1B, we wouldn't be getting as upset about the usage. But because there's such a significant drop off between the production of Devin Singletary and the production of Frank Gore, that's what drives that stark difference and gets us so upset.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. I'll tell you what, man, when it comes to the quarterbacking, look, this is not a, a shot at. Josh Allen so much, but Deshaun Watson, just, he flat out, he outplayed Josh Allen. That's the bottom line. That's why we're having this discussion on this night, Bill's season over, the team with the better quarterback won. And again, that's not a shot at Josh Allen. Uh, Deshaun Watson, he, he's just better than most. And, and I think you saw that. And again, I don't want to sit here and put too much of the blame on Josh Allen. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you, Bruce, If if I'm assigning blame of five or six different things. Josh Allen might not even make that list, but Deshaun Watson made a couple special plays and Josh Allen didn't. I think that's just the point of the game, but it, you're kind of going into the game. That's what you expected. Deshaun Watson's the a better
0: quarterback. That's what's supposed to happen, right? If Deshaun Watson is better than your quarterback, that doesn't mean your quarterback is bad. Right. So having Deshaun Watson outplay Josh Allen is not only unsurprising, it, it should have been expected going in And because it should have been expected going in, you can't really point to that as the method or reason for the loss because we kind of knew that Deshaun Watson was better than Josh Allen all year. But yet the teams ended up with the same records. So it's not one of those scenarios where we didn't need Josh Allen to be better than Deshaun Watson to win the game. So the fact that we didn't need that to happen means we really probably shouldn't be that upset that it didn't happen. Now, I would argue Josh Allen didn't play didn't play very well. He had some very very strange decision making. He very could have easily had three pick sixes. He tried to lateral the ball back to Deshaun for to Dawson Knox for no apparent reason. He had two fumbles, one of which was very luckily his knee was down for. So there is a very very good chance that Josh Allen was inches away from having five Turnovers in yeah. that game, so the razor-thin margin. You know, we look at it and go, Josh Allen. You know, didn't have any. You know, he only had one turnover. He he was inches away from having five turnovers. And if that happens, then all of a sudden the narrative's different. Now it's Josh Allen lost us the game. But the plays that he made were not markedly different in order for them to achieve that. You know, you hate to go with the phrase turnover-worthy plays, but you know, there's a lot of that. However. Josh Allen didn't need to be better than Deshaun Watson to win this game. He would have helped if he was a little better, but Deshaun Watson, although he invites pressure on himself and sometimes doesn't necessarily move in a way that behooves the offensive line to be able to maintain blocks, he's a special player who does special things in big times. Like, that's just the way he's been since he was in college. Dabo Sweeney famously said, if you pass on Deshaun Watson, Cleveland, then you're passing on Superman and you're passing on Michael Jordan and you're passing on a generational talent. And this is the kind of, these are the kind of phrases people use to describe Sean Watson in college. And so I'm not surprised he came up big in a clutch moment. I still remember him coming up really, really big against the saints in a unbelievable last minute drive. And then Drew Brees came with only a few seconds left and did it again. Like, Deshaun Watson scored a touchdown. And they're like, okay, totally. We're going to win this game. It's amazing. And then Drew Brees came back down with, like, 20 seconds of no timeouts, and they kicked the game-winning field goal. And Deshaun Watson like, what else did you want me to do? All you had to do was hang on to that play for, like, eight seconds, and we would have won, and I would have been the hero. But now, not so much. He's a special player who did a special thing. I'm not surprised. But Josh Allen didn't play that great. I would argue it was a fairly bad game overall but he didn't need to be better than Josh than Deshaun Watson.
1: Well, let me play this clip for you, okay? And I can't take credit for it. Ryan Murr on Twitter, who's really good at coming up with funny gifs and uh, video clips. He came up with this as a clip from The Office, D'Angelo Vickers. If you're a fan of The Office and you're listening to this, you'll know exactly what the theme is. Is D'Angelo Vickers out on a sales call? And this is his description of Josh Allen. And I wanna get your reaction after. You could be making the biggest mistake of your life or the biggest good decision of your life. It's either going to be the best thing you ever did or the worst thing you ever did. You ever play Russian roulette? Time to spin the chamber, bars. <laughs> I, I Listen, man, that's Josh Allen's game. He's going to make you laugh. He's going to make you cry. He's going to make you mad. He's going to make you happy. He's going to do everything all in one game. And that, that was kind of on display Saturday.
0: Michael Kist, who is a writer for Uh, SB Nation for the Eagles side blog of SB Nation tweeted out that he just got done snorting some Josh Allen film and he's still a little shaky from it. (laughs) And the, you know, the terminology is that Josh Allen is infuriating and Josh Allen is maddening. And then he does something ridiculous and he, he threw a 50 yard pass to a fullback jump ball in double coverage. I mean, this is the kind of things he does. And some of it is just what I have always deemed as being YOLO, Josh, And that is essentially what we got against the Texans. We got YOLO, Josh. We got end of 2018, Josh, where it's like, hey, everything's going to be a 40-yard play, or it's going to be an absolutely terrible sack that he shouldn't have taken, or a ball where you go, what were you doing with that? And you can't be a franchise quarterback that way. That's not going to be a franchise. He will not be a franchise quarterback exactly as he is. We need to find a way to curb the negativity while still leaving the opportunity for big slash special plays. But I think that the D'Angelo Vickers line is extremely apt for that particular version of Josh Allen, the end of 2018, what we got in the Texans game, the Yolo Josh, the, well, you know what? Um, I'm not going to see tomorrow, so let's just chuck this up to Pat DeMarco and let's just see how this goes. I got a great idea. I'm going to try and pivot out of this sack with Whitney Merciless and run against the grain and then throw the ball back, and that'll be great. Hey, wait, I got this great idea. I see this tight end coming on my right, and I'm getting tackled. I'll bet you if I pitch it to him, this is going to be on SportsCenter, and I'm going to have people comparing me to Randy Moss. Like, I think maybe this might happen. Those are the moments where you say, okay, yeah, we got Yolo Josh today. And D'Angelo Vickers said it best.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, I think fans, um, media, podcasters like you and I, I think we all tend to maybe nitpick about some things a little bit too much that maybe it's not quite as big of a deal as we make it out to be. But I, I gotta say this, that, and I'm using air quotes here, that other wide receiver I think that's been a big problem all year. There were two dependent at the wide receiver position on Cole Beasley and John Brown. No matter how you look at it, I, I, I think that position really reared its ugly head a few times and never more so than in Houston. So Duke Williams gets the call, based largely in part because he had a very impressive, meaningless regular season finale. Look, the guy's talented. We've seen glimpses of it a lot, but we also have seen reasons why He's been inactive for the better part of the last two months. He had, I think he had four catches, but he dropped that again. You, you talked about it at the beginning of the podcast here. He dropped a touchdown that would have put him up 17-0 at the half. That might have been the nail in Houston right there before he even go into the locker room. They didn't draft DK Metcalf or Terry McLaurin. They took Cody Ford. I'm not going to be that guy who second guess stuff like that because that's so easy. That's, you know, that's the easy way out to do they didn't make an in-season trade. That might bother me a little bit more because there was a point in the season where they realized, all right, we need another receiver. We're going to be a good team. We could be a contender this year. We might want to go out and get another wide receiver. They didn't do that. So that bothers me a little bit that they were too dependent on them. And then on uh, Saturday's game, Duke Williams had 10 targets. Cole Beasley, who's a very good underneath receiver, he only had half of that. He only had five targets. In fact, Duke had 10 targets and Browning and Beasley combined only had 13 targets. For whatever reason, I don't know why. Obviously, it was part of the game plan, but Duke, Duke Williams was too much a part of this game plan, and I don't think he was ready for it, man. And that came back and that bit him.
0: Yeah, I think anytime you get targeted 10 times and you drop three and you catch four, those aren't good numbers. Right. Now, to be fair a couple of those were deeper shots from Josh Allen that were uncatchable right down the right sideline. After we took the shot to him and he dropped it, we took a different shot to him and it wasn't catchable. So there is some of that as well. But I think, I think we might be looking at the Duke Williams thing wrong. And what I mean by that is I think the big positive to come out of this game is look how willing Josh Allen was to throw the ball to a different style of receiver. Fair. Yep. Fair, fair point. Because that that was really a big question coming into this year when we were talking about Duke Williams versus Isaiah McKenzie for the sixth spot. And so I think there's value there. But I think the Duke Williams-Houston-Texas game changes the way I look at the offseason. Because what if we can find a Duke Williams-style player who's just more talented than Duke Williams this offseason? That's not crazy. Duke Williams is... Is, was an undrafted free agent who played in the CFL and got taken as a flyer for for a reason. It wasn't just off the field stuff. He was also ran extremely slow in the 40. He has trouble separating. Like it's not unreasonable that he's at bottom of the roster NFL player. That's not like insane that he's this, you know, potential diamond in the rough. So Josh Allen's willingness to throw to him and give him 10 targets is what's interesting to me. The fact that Josh Allen looked at him crossing the middle of the field with a defender draped on him because Duke Williams has trouble running away from players and said, you know, I, uh, I think I can make that throw. And he did it. And some of them were good and some of them were not good, but his willingness, I think is really important. And Duke Williams has a valuable role to play in this game because he exposed the willingness of Josh Allen to be able to make that throw now. Do I think Cole Beasley should have been more involved in the game plan? Absolutely, I should have. He should have. There's, there's no way that a player who's active for the first time in a meaningful game for a long time gets the most targets on your team. But it's just kind of the way the game fell. I don't think that was part of Dable's plan going in. I think that there was two factors with that. The first one is we ended up rushing a couple times. And when you rush a couple times on offense, you know, you're at the end of the half and you're trying to rush and you're at the end of a game and you're trying to rush and Brian Dable apparently thought you had to rush in overtime. When you have those things happen, you have a tendency to throw more contested balls because the downside of it, of the making those throws, is minimized by the clock. So if you think, okay, well, I'm driving down here and I'm throwing the ball deep down the right sideline and there's nine seconds to go or whatever the number is, right? Right. the the downside of me getting it picked is not as significant because they're not going to have time to do anything with it. So I'm much more willing to make that throw. And now because of the game situation, I'm more willing to make the throw. And who do you make those throws to? You make them to Duke Williams. So it's just kind of the way organically it went. I don't think it was the intent coming in that we're going to target Duke more. In addition, I think when Josh got a little panicked, He looked to see where Duke Williams was. And that goes back to my willingness thing. The fact that Josh Allen appeared to be using Duke Williams as a security blanket speaks to the fact that we could go out and get him that type of receiver. And that is the way that Josh would necessarily interpret it. This opens the door a lot more for a guy like T. Higgins in the draft because you go, okay, if you get someone who's a similar type of receiver, but can separate a little better a little better route runner, maybe not quite the run blocker, but has better hands. Josh Allen will use him. And that was a question. So I think Duke Williams did us a service in this game, even though he didn't necessarily play out of his mind.
1: Let's take a quick break. Want to let you know today's show is supported by Pulse Cellular. Today's lifestyle demand is the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast to coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each. That includes hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and up to 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers out there, Pulse has you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide. All with the best phones, or you can bring your own. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at PulseCellular.com. All right, Bruce. So we've spent a lot of time here talking about the offense, but honestly, these are conversations that if we were doing this on a weekly basis, we'd be kind of regurgitating a lot of this offensive stuff throughout the year, because this has been our offense for better, for worse. This has been the Bills offense, the defense. That's what stuns me the most. And I feel like This is the biggest reason why more than anything else they were having this conversation right now because here's the bottom line. Yeah, sure, they left points on the board. Duke Williams left four points on the board for sure. John Brown might've left four points on the board. They blew some opportunities to really put this game away. But even having said that, okay, you have a 16-0 league deep into the third quarter. An elite defense is supposed to shut the door. This defense should have shut the door. They didn't. Terrible tackling. I mean, really bad tackling. The third and eight conversion, the failed sack by Matt Milano and Saran Neal, um, dropped interception opportunities, won by Saran Neal. So there's lots of blame to spread around. And we've talked about a lot of it. Some Josh Allen, some Brian Dable, some uh, Dawson Knox, not making a block, things like that. But no matter what, for me, it starts here because this is the strength of our team. And we gave the strength of our team a 16-point lead. I don't care that they had seven sacks. They needed eight, maybe more. You know what I mean? This is supposed to be an elite defense. And my expectation was if we get a 16-0 lead late in the third quarter on the road, that's a wrap. But obviously that
0: didn't happen. This defense let us down. I agree that the defense is not without blame here. Now, I will say the Texans got 22 points in five quarters. That is not an unreasonable total. Now the method by which they acquired them is frustrating because they had zero at halftime. And that's absolutely true. But if you take a step back and you look at the totality of the game, scoring 22 points in five quarters, your offense should be able to outscore that. Right. But it's it's the obvious execution moments that pivoted the game. That frustrate you on defense. It's allowing a team to get third and 18 not because of an amazing play, but because he checked it down to a running back and your people were too far back to be able to close in time. There was no ridiculous offensive play that converted third and 18. Deshaun Watson didn't put the team on his back to get third and 18. He did put his team on his back to be able to spin out of that sack and find Taiwan Jones, ironically enough, who made the back-breaking play. But there was no heroic play on the Texans' part. It was a defensive failure from multiple players and that right there is the type of thing where it's so obvious it's so blatant that it hurts even more there was there was a moment during the texan's second half where we had jordan phillips and Corey legion in there at defensive tackle that's not good bob like that that's not great we don't want that Because neither one of them are particularly stout defending the run. And so what did the Texans do? They smashed it down our throats and scored a touchdown, got back on the horse. That's how that works. So there are some problems there. Now, do I think overall the defense holds the plurality of the blame for the loss? Absolutely not. But to say they don't hold any of it, I think would be ignoring some fairly glaring moments of ineptitude that allowed what we saw from the Texans.
1: I'll tell you what, man. How much? Sir, uh, I'm not anti saran Neal, but Tyrone Johnson being hurt that really hurt this team because again, he was part of that along with Milano that missed that sack. He should have had an interception. He had a sack earlier in the game, Saran Neal. And I'm not trying to be old, angry guy who's bitter guy who bitches about shit, but he's flexing. I hate that stuff. By the way, I, I, I God it drives me nuts. But a guy like. Was the was the moment too big for him? Because, again, he made a couple costly mistakes. And I'm not saying the Bills defense didn't get the job done because of Saran Neal, nobody else. But you got to he, he played a pretty, pretty big role in the Bills defense collapsing in that late in the last quarter and a half or so.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, when, when Saran Neal got up and started flexing, um, my wife actually said, oh, don't do that. Don't don't do that. Stop. Tur- walk away. Because because said in, uh, Bruce, we, I said it, Bruce, I
1: said that too, but I said it a lot differently than, you, than your wife did, I promise
0: you. <laughs> it, it, it was, um, she said a lot louder than that for sure because my wife was a rabid Bills fan and was yelling at the television just like me. But not only did we not want to get the 15 yard penalty, she didn't want the karma associated with that. And yeah. what happened was karma. That's what happened is that Saran Neal missed the tackle that Deshaun Watson spun out of and made the, made the great play. Saran Neal is a good player. He's a he. You know, the fact that matters. He's a he's a good special teams gunner. The fact that he can fill in in multiple different places on the defense, he can play at slot corner. He's played outside corner. I know in a pinch he could fill in at strong safety. There's value to that, and we knew he was going to provide that value when he came out of Jacksonville State. That was one of his calling cards. Was he was a Swiss Army knife on defense? Yeah, and that's great. But he's not the level where you can start doing that. So. That's what makes the things even more frustrating is when you have moments and you thought, oh, gosh, I, I sure hope that doesn't come back to bite us. Every time we said, I, I sure hope that doesn't come back to bite us. When we kicked the field goal and we said, oh, man, you know, we really could have used that touchdown from, from Duke. I I hope that doesn't come back to bite us. It did. When Saran Neal got a little flexy and Sean Watson kind of looked at him like, yeah, we'll see, man. You thought, oh, gosh, I hope that doesn't come back to bite us. And it did. It did it. Every single time. It was the perfect storm of necessary failures to be able to let the Texans win this game, and we did. And
1: I'll tell you why, man, I'm not an excuse maker. And if you want to add to that perfect storm, officiating was a factor. I mean, that's just not deniable. Okay. That delay a game penalty, no call delay a game that benefited Houston. I believe that was on the third and 18 play. It was clearly a delay a game. I mean, it wasn't even close. It was a full second. Houston got away with that. And then, of course, the big thing, the biggest. We haven't even talked about this. Maybe one of the biggest plays of the game was that horrific personal fall blindside hit penalty. And I'm using air quotes when I say penalty on Cody Ford on that Bill's overtime drive, because I'll tell you what, had that not happened, Buffalo would have had a fourth and five. They would have been faced fourth down five yards to go from the Houston 38, which would have made for a very interesting decision. I'm going to ask you that, by the way. So if it's fourth and five from the Houston 38 in overtime, do you think, there's three choices, obviously. Do you think they go for it? Do you think they try it would have been a fifty-five or fifty-six yard field goal, depending on if they spotted seven or eight yards back? Or do you think they try to punt and pin them? I put this on Twitter by the way on Monday, and about sixty-five percent of fans said that they would have went for it. 25% or so said a field goal attempt and 10% punt. So I guess it's a two part question for you. Number one, how big of a, a role did officiating play? And again, I know you're like me, you don't like to use referees as an excuse for a loss, but you can't say that it it didn't contribute to it. And number two, had that call on Ford not been made or if Houston would have declined it for some reason, and it was fourth and five from the, from the Texans
0: 38, what do you think Sean would have done? And what would you have done? I do think officiating played a role. I, you know, typically in games, it's bad, but it washes out. Right. And that's one of the reasons that I don't like to make excuses for it because as a general rule, it has a tendency to wash out. But in the playoffs, there's no, there's no future opportunity for it to come back around to benefit you because if it, if it messes up the game, you're gone. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that makes officiating in the playoffs so much harder and worse when it's bad than officiating during the regular season because if you officiate and you, you, you get a blown call and it causes you to lose a game in, team, in, in, in week two, for example, there's probably going to be a blown call that helps you win a game in week seven. Like, it's just the way this works, but there is no next week. In the playoffs you screw it up somebody goes home and absolutely it had an effect on the game I do think that if it was fourth and five in the scenario that they would have gone for it because for some reason this year Sean McDermott has become more adverse to long field goals he has kicked less I remember when Hauschka first got here I would turn to my wife every time he would bomb a 50 plus yarder and go, all we ask Steven Hauschka to do is bomb ridiculous 50 yard field goals and save our butts. Like that's all we do in this offense and very, very low key. I don't feel like anyone's talking about it. Sean McDermott has kind of eschewed the long field goal this year in favor of going for it. And I'll tell you why it's because of the influence of analytics, the perception from the outside sources, is that maybe it might be because Stephen Hausch has been struggling or because Sean McDermott's an old school coach and, you know, it's just the way it is. But Sean McDermott has looked at the probability of you converting a fourth and five versus the probability of you converting a 59 yard field goal and has gone, yeah, I'll, I'll take the fourth and five. Thank you very much. And the influence of analytics on him makes me think that he would go for it. In addition, I would have gone for it. I know it's a, I know it's temperature controlled, and I know it's an in, you know indoor stadium, but I don't trust Hauska at long range anymore. He was like one. He yeah,
1: was one for five from fifty yards and beyond for the season, and this would have been a fifty-five or fifty-six yarder.
0: I, I don't trust him at long range anymore. Now, especially not the way I did prior to the Henry Anderson injury. I don't trust him at long range, and I do trust Brian Gable to scheme up a pick play or something that is specifically designed to get you the appropriate yardage a high percentage of the time. So I would have gone for it, and I think McDermott would have gone for it.
1: I agree, too, and I 100% would have went for it as well. One of the last few things I want to head on here. Okay, so if we're being factually, it's true here. The Bills are a young team, and they're growing. But I'm going to be honest with you, Bruce. I don't like that moniker. It, It bothers me. There's a lot of Bills fans that, look, if you want to have a positive, optimistic outlook about the team, that's awesome. You should. They're good and they should be better. I get that. But to not be bothered at all and just say, all right, well, they're a young team and they're growing. That's not necessarily the case, okay? Because it goes both ways. There are some teams that looked really good with good young players and then they regress and they go backwards. And conversely, look at San Francisco. I mean, what was it? Last April, they're picking second in the draft. They were a tire fire last year. Now they're the top seed in the NFC and they're favored to go to the Super Bowl, be playing in Miami in a handful of weeks at the Hard Rock Stadium. You know, so I don't want to buy this, uh, their young team and growing moniker because I feel like this year, right now, this was a very good opportunity that flat out, I mean, let's. there's no getting around it. The Bills blew it Saturday, okay? But they should have won the game. So they blew an opportunity. Now, outside of Baltimore, The AFC, to me, is majorly flawed. I mean, who's to say that they don't go into Kansas City next week and beat them? They don't have a good defense. So I get it. You know, young team, Monica, if you want to have that optimism to carry you over. But it's also okay to be really bothered by the fact that they blew an opportunity. And that's not even to say that they could have went further because they could have next
0: week would have been a winnable game as well. I agree that's frustrating. It should be frustrating because we should have won that game against Houston, Texas. I picked us to win the game. I thought we were the better team. I think we should have won the game, and we had so many things that went wrong that indicated that we wouldn't have an opportunity to do that. However, if you look at some of the teams that have accommodated this ridiculous turnaround, they have usually done it with a massive influx of star power. You mentioned the San Francisco 49ers. The San Francisco 49ers drafted Nick Bosa, yeah. They traded for D Ford. And all of a sudden, a defense that was the worst defense in the history of football in forcing turnovers got an influx of two star pass rushers and their quarterback back from injury. I mean, if you told me we were gonna add a reasonable to good quarterback and two excellent pass rushers, Um, okay, that's a big deal. In addition, in the same way that certain defenses are due for regression toward the mean when it comes to having a high amount of turnovers, the San Francisco 49ers were due for a regression toward the mean in regards to having a little number of turnovers. Turnovers, as a general rule, have a tendency to be a lot more random than some people want to give them credit for. Your ability to acquire turnovers over the course of an entire year is a little bit more random than you'd like. And what I mean by that is they were due for some. And so when you have a defense that's that bad at getting turnovers, and we all accept that toxic differential has an effect on your ability to win the game, toxic differential being big plays for and against and turnovers for and against. We accept that. We know that. We're like, okay, that that, that correlates with winning. But yet when we see a team like the 2018 Niners, who forced the least amount of turnovers of any defense in the history of football, and then we don't think that there's a chance for them to bounce back and for that to have a huge effect on their win-loss record, absolutely it does. They got their starting quarterback back. They already had a really good head coach. They got their starting quarterback back. They ejected more talent into their running back room. They drafted a wide receiver. They traded for a wide receiver. They traded for a pass rusher. They drafted a high-level pass rusher. They picked up a high-level linebacker in free agency. And all of a sudden, they're a really good team. So they injected a lot of talent in there. And they were already due for an increase to the mean when it comes to turnovers on defense, which we've established has an effect on win-loss ratio. So I think the turnaround should have been a little bit more expected from the 49ers than maybe we're thinking now. So there's a big difference I think between the turnaround between the 49ers and what you reasonably could have expected from the bills. The bills didn't inject a ton of talent into this team this offseason. We just injected the ability to get us from terrible to passable. We didn't go out and splash with Le'Veon Bell. We went out and got quality Uh, yeah okay let's go with quantity instead we need to fill as many holes as possible with reasonably rosterable potentially startable players and that's what we did this year might be to the bills what last year was to the 49ers hey let's go maybe get a big splash free agent signing hey maybe let's go get a a trade up in the first round and get a player. Hey, let's get a couple star receivers for Josh Allen. Let's get a pass rusher. Maybe years gross modest is still on the the board. Let's go get him from Penn state. You know, maybe there's a player in, you know, maybe Lavista Chenault is still on the, the board from Colorado at the end of the first round. I think that you have to do that at the right time. The jets tried to do that too early. They tried to do it without filling the holes. Yeah, They were like, let, let, let's, get, let's get splashy, baby. Let's get Le'Veon Bell. Let's get splashy. The Bills said, eh, let's not get splashy. The 49ers got splashy because they knew it was the right time to do it. I don't think last year was the time to get splashy for the Bills. I think the Bills did it right. Let's just get to passable, man. We got holes all over the place. Let's just plug the darn holes, and then we'll worry about everything else. And that's what they did. I think this year for the Bills is much more equitable to what last year was to the 49ers.
1: All uh, right. It's a good point. And it's going to be an interesting offseason for the bills. Frankly, I'm just, I'm still stinging from this. I'm not quite ready to start getting into free agency and who they might keep and let go and stuff like that. That'll be coming in the uh, future episodes over the next handful of weeks. Let me finish with a couple other questions here. Let's talk about the Patriots for a second. Actually, that dynasty may be over I don't think Tom Brady's retiring. It certainly didn't sound like it from his comments. You personally, let me ask you, man, do you think he goes back to New England? Do you think he ends up with the Chargers, which sounds like the most likely destination if he leaves or perhaps the Colts or some other team out of left field? Where do you think Tom Brady plays next year? And do you think the Patriots dynasty is over? My initial prediction
0: is that Tom Brady ends up back with the Patriots on a one or two year deal. I really do. I think that... As much as Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, there was a report earlier this year that they were not on good terms at this point. Right. I think both of them are at their core pragmatists. The reason why Tom Brady falls down instead of getting hit and throws the ball, not only because he knows he's never going to get called for, pass, uh, for intentional grounding, but because he doesn't want to get hit, is because at his heart, Tom Brady is a pragmatist. Bill Belichick is also a pragmatist. He doesn't get emotionally attached attached to himself to players. He gets rid of players when it feels like necessary. I think both of them know that they are each other's best opportunity to get one more. And so I think that even though there might be some emotional stuff there, ultimately pragmatism will likely win for both parties. And so in my personal opinion, Brady will be back with New England next year. I actually, you now, know, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go Boy, ahead. Keep going. No, you keep going. Make your point. You, this, the, the next question was Is the dynasty over? And the answer to that, in my opinion, is yes, the dynasty is over. And it's not over because, you know, uh, Bill Belichick's not a great coach or Tom Brady's not a capable quarterback. It's over because Tom Brady's not what he was. And now we're going to need more. We're going to need a lot more and from from other players. And I don't think the Patriots have drafted particularly well. The Patriots have a couple things that really the foundational team is built on. Brady, Dante Scarnecchia, and Bill Belichick. Those are the three pillars of the New England Patriots. And as the offensive line talent starts to degrade, Dante Scarnecchia's ability to prop that up gets lessened as Tom Brady's skill level starts to decline. All the other things have to pick up the slack. Belichick is still the greatest game planner we've ever seen. He's still one of the greatest defensive minds in the history of football and arguably the best game planner that the sport has ever seen. But that's not good enough anymore. He needed all three things to be at peak efficiency. He needed Brady, he needed Dante Scarnecchia, and he needed ultimately his defensive mind and his ability to game plan. And as the offensive line talent starts to degrade, the Patriots have not historically done overly well with talent acquisition in the draft or free agency. When they drafted Inkeel Harry last year, I said, I'm not afraid of Inkeel Harry. I thought Inkeel Harry was late stage Des Bryant. I'm not afraid of Inkeel Harry. The Patriots have not historically done well drafting receivers. And Dante Skarniecki has basically made any lineman they plugged in there be reasonable. And so I think the dynasty is over. That doesn't mean they're not going to be a great team. They're still going to be a great team. As long as it's, those three things are there, they're, they're competitive. They're, they can win any game. But as far as being the dominating fearsome force, I think it's over.
1: I do too, and I'll tell you, I was having a conversation with a, a football buddy of mine, and this was not long ago. I actually, you know, the the, the, the sentiment is Tom Brady's gone, the Patriots are going to suck. And I, I wasn't buying that because I said to my, my buddy, I said, you know what? You can make an argument that Tom Brady at 42, 43 years old next year, that the Patriots might actually be better off if they went out and say maybe Cam Noonan or Jameis Winston or they got, I don't know, they swung a trade for somebody that I can't think of off the top of my head. They might actually be better without Tom Brady than they are with him. But I'll tell you what, I watched that Miami game and of course the playoff game against Tennessee. And you're right, man, I looked around, they're missing a lot. They're just not that talented. They're not that good of a football team. So without peak Tom Brady anymore, and I do, you know what, I'm gonna be honest with you, man. I I think Tom Brady is washed up at this point. I really do. I'm, I'm not impressed with him whatsoever. I did not fear him at all. There's so many more quarterbacks that Bills played this year that I was much more afraid of than Tom Brady. So yeah, I thought the Patriots would actually be better off. And I said, you know what? They're not done. They're going to get a better quarterback and they're going to be right there again. But whether he stays or not, I, I think this team is on the decline. And I'm I'm sure you're going to agree with this too. I could totally see this summer. The chic pick's going to be the Bills to win the East. You know, all the media and all the all the publications are going to come out and probably a lot of them are going to have the Bills going uh eleven and five or so and winning the AFC East, especially if they have a decent off season. Who are you rooting for now in the Super Bowl? Obviously you're gonna root for the Bills. They're out. What would you like to see win the Super Bowl?
0: Um I'm rooting for a Kansas City, Minnesota Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. I I like Andy Reid a lot. I like Andy Reid quite a bit. Um, I like him as a human being. I I admire the way that he empowers his coaches and he tries to build people up. I admire the fact that he has made such an impressive coaching tree for other people to go for and how he defends his coaches and tries to promote them and and really empower and develop people underneath him. I I like Kirk Cousins as a human being. I think he's a nice guy. I think that uh, having a person of his of his caliber, win a Super Bowl is always is always good. I think that the he, he you know he'd probably make a few dollars writing a few books about it, like Nick Foles did. But I like Kirk Cousins. Um, in addition, I like Mike Zimmer. I've always liked Mike Zimmer. Um, I understand that he does things coaching wise that make me want to pull my hair out, but I like him as a guy. I think he reminds me a lot stylistically of some of the coaches that I had, and so I like Mike Zimmer and I want him to do well, and so. For those reasons, I think that that Kansas City, Minnesota would be a good Super Bowl. If it was Kansas City, Minnesota, I do not think I would have a rooting interest. I think I would be okay with either person winning.
1: I'm all in for Kansas City, and the only reason why is because my guy, Damone Harris, plays for them now, defensive end out of UB and Buffalo. Very good uh, friend of mine. He's bouncing around the league, 13 this year, and he's finally found a home. He's playing well there. So For that reason alone, I'm all in for Kansas City, and I got to be honest with you, again, close personal family, friend of mine, there would have been like maybe a 1% conflict had the Bills played Kansas City Sun. So, I mean, ultimately, I still, of course, would have rooted for the Bills, but I was pulling for Damone. So now I get to be all in for him. That's pretty cool. I'll tell you one tiny little silver lining about the Bills losing, and again, very tiny, is I'm a football fan and I enjoy the NFL playoffs. It's my favorite thing to watch in sports. And with the Bills there, it's stressful. You kind of feel like you're, you know, you're living or dying with every single play So in a very small way, I kind of like now that I'm I'm at least starting to get over the Bills losing against Houston at least a little bit. I can watch these last eight teams go at it with a lot less mental stress and just actually enjoy some playoff football. You know what I mean?
0: I do know what you mean. Um, I found myself not relieved, but more relaxed after the Bills were out of the playoffs. And I understand that because you're watching it as a football fan instead of out of someone who has emotional tie and rooting interest. So it feels differently. It's a little bit like watching a bowl game where your college isn't playing and your conference isn't playing and you're just watching it as a fan of the particular sport. So I understand it. I I was a little, little ill this weekend, so I didn't quite watch as much football as I wanted to, decided to try and catch up on some sleep, but I went back and watched them later, and you know, I felt good about some of the teams that were in there. And when you stack the Bills up next to these teams, my biggest takeaway was, this isn't the 2017 Bills, Pat. Th- this team deserved to be there. They're a good football team. It-, it makes it more frustrating in the moment, but when you take a step back and it's all over and the dust has settled, you can nod and say, this isn't a fluke. This is a good football team. I'm not saying we're going to make the playoffs next year. I'm not saying we're going to win two playoff games next year. I'm not saying we're going to make the Super Bowl next year. I'm saying that it's not a fluke anymore. The feeling that you're feeling is not the same feeling we felt in 2017 when we broke the drought, and it was just relief. It was just, thank God that's over. That's not what's going on anymore. Now it's legitimate and reasonable optimism, and I'm good with that.
1: I am too. All right, last question here, man. So you just finished your first year doing the Nick and Nolan show. I'm talking about the season, of course. How do you feel? What can we expect going forward with the podcast, which of course is part of the Buffalo Rumblings podcast network? And what's something that maybe you and Nick, who by the way, your partner, I'm gonna have him on soon. He had other commitments. I'm gonna definitely have him on soon. Really good partner, good podcaster as well. What are something that maybe you and him wanna keep working on to maybe improve a little bit, something different? for the podcast going forward.
0: I think we're going to do a little bit more draft stuff this year than we did last year um, because people really seem to enjoy what we did last year. We did a kind of a mega, a mega mock draft um, last year, right before we joined the Buffalo rumblings podcast network. So a lot of the Buffalo rumblings listeners have not had an opportunity to hear us do that. Our mock draft is very, very, very uh, unique. We literally go through every single pick with the picks and the trades. And I literally go through every single GM and I go, okay, now I'm in this GM's head. What do I like? What do I not like? What do I want to trade? Who's calling? Why are they calling? What are they offering? What am I trying to do? And so we getting through an entire 32 pick mock draft um, for the first round and then going the rest of the rounds for the bills, including trades, I think the the mega pod was, I think it was two hours and 40 minutes and we split it into two. So I think it was two, almost 90 minute pods for one gigantic mega mock draft. Wow! And that's something we did last year and we really enjoyed it. And uh, it it got, it got a lot of uh, positive feedback and I think we're going to do that. We're going to probably do a little bit more draft stuff leading up to it. And, in addition, one of the things that the listeners really enjoyed us doing last year is we would do some very kind of eccentric, deep-dive topics. We would do, go really, really deep into something like special teams or the Earhart-Perkins system, which is what Brian Dable, the language methodology that he uses when he runs this offense, or something like that. We did a, a master class on Sean McDermott is what we did. We actually re-released that pod on Christmas Day this year for listeners to pick up on, and so I think we'll do a lot of those. And we're we're currently kicking around some topics that we think might be interesting for things like that. And that's kind of what the off season looks like for us. But we're still going to bring it every time.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, man, I'm really looking forward to listening. I'm sure a lot of people out there as well at Bruce Exclusive on Twitter. Again, Nick and Nolan show, dude, Yo, you do great work. You legitimately, and I'm not just saying this because you're on my podcast. I've said it when you're not on my podcast repeatedly, man. I think you. You're one of the best out there. I really enjoy listening to you, man. You're one of those guys are on the rise. So kind of had to get you on the ground floor. And I'm glad that I did.
0: I appreciate that, man. It means a lot to me. And I always want to make sure that I can say I was on a future award-winning podcast.
1: All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for another episode. First one of 2020 now in the books. Very big thank you again, Bruce Nolan from the Nick and Nolan show, part of the Buffalo Rumley's network. Bruce, without question, one of the rising stars in the Buffalo Bills content creation community. Love having that guy on his show. His insight is among the very best in the business. So thanks again, Bruce. Guys, listen, if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, come on, man, do it. Subscribe. Rate and review, all that fun stuff. It really, really helps me continue to grow this show. You can catch us, Apple, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere. Future award-winning podcasts are found. Got new shows every Tuesday and every Friday. And when you subscribe, you'll get them first. Also, go hit up the Analytics Podcast YouTube channel. I got podcast highlight clips from current and past shows there. Plenty of brand new original audio content coming soon. Not going to lie. I have not had a chance really to do much with that, but that's going to change very soon. So go check that out again. Moranalytics podcast on YouTube. Of course, last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran tweets. Constantly tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guests, polls, prize pack giveaways, thoughts, arguing with fans, all kinds of fun stuff there at hammer tweets. Again, thank you so much for listening. I say it all the time and I say it because I really mean it. I truly appreciate each and every single one of you that take any time from your day to give this podcast a listen. I know there's a million pods out there. So if you're listening to this one, I'm very, very grateful, very thankful, very humble, very appreciative for each and every single one of you. Have a very good week. And I'll be back with a new show on Friday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.
0: Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters, the more your network matters.